Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I hope this podcast finds you, your family and the people you love safe and in good health. If you're on the front line working for the NHS or if you're a cleaner or if you're restocking shelves in supermarkets or if you perform some other essential service, we salute you, thank you and wish you all the very best. And I think now we've all just run out of ways to express just how weird things are. At the moment, Soho is not only all but closed down, but half it's boarded up. And because of social distancing, this phrase nobody had even heard a few weeks ago, this episode of Soho Bites is not really the one I'd originally planned and is actually made up of two halves of different shows. They are though, by coincidence, linked by two things. Firstly, there's a jazz singer for Northern Ireland in each half. And secondly, both parts of the programme have been disrupted by the V word. That's virus, not Voldemort. In the second half of the show, it's Soho Film Chat as usual. And I'll be talking in a socially distanced way, of course, about the 1964 gem, Where Has Poor Mickey Gone? Dr Adrian Smith from Sussex University joins me down the line to talk about this. And in a first for Soho Bites, I also got to talk to one of the stars of the film, Boise himself, John Chalice. And before that, to kick the programme off, I met up with singer David Chewan shortly before he was due to perform at the most famous jazz club in the world. So what is the most famous jazz club in the world? Don't even think about it, you know the answer, it's Ronnie Scott's on Frith Street. The list of legendary jazz musicians who performed there since the club first opened its doors, originally on Gerrard Street back in 1959, is extraordinary, and anybody who aspires to be anybody in the jazz world aims to play there. David Chewan is a jazz singer from Donegadee in Northern Ireland, and he plays a regular slot on Monday nights upstairs at Ronnie Scott's with the Renato Diello Quartet. I first got in touch with him months ago to arrange an interview on one of his Ronnie's nights, wanted to find out what it's like to perform at such an iconic venue. Frustratingly, the meeting kept getting postponed because of sickness and double bookings and one thing and another. But eventually, we had a date in the diary. It was all on, we were ready to go, and then, a few hours before the gig was supposed to start, this happened. Now is the time for everyone to stop 
non-essential contact with others and to stop all unnecessary travel. And you should avoid pubs, clubs, theatres and other such social venues. This was the first announcement, the one that wasn't actually a full lockdown, the one that was more like a bit of friendly advice from Bumbley Uncle Boris. It was confusing. I texted David, is the gig still on? Turns out, yes it is. So we're headed into Soho. When I arrived at Frith Street, there was a febrile end of day's atmosphere. And I came across this gentleman standing on the corner of Frith Street and Old Compton Street, making his views on the crises known to passers-by. Boris Johnson has now suggested that we shouldn't be hanging out together and I think that this is particularly correct for all heterosexuals. I believe all heterosexuals should self-quarantine to make sure that they do not reproduce. The last thing we need is more people like you in the world. Please do not reproduce during the time of the coronavirus. There are lots of other ways you can do it, guys. By the time I sat down at Ronnie's to talk to David, it was unclear what was happening. The show hadn't been cancelled, but it's becoming obvious that the crowd was going to be a small one. As it turned out, I was one of only six people in the audience. This is how the evening progressed. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, lady and gentlemen. Well, we've all stopped talking about Brexit, that's one thing for sure. So to celebrate the oncoming uh, international travel ban, uh, I'd like to <laughs> do a famous Sinatra number called Come Flying With Me. I'm David Chewin. Uh, we're here upstairs at Ronnie Scott's with the Renato Diallo uh, Quintet actually tonight because Nigel Price is joining us on guitar and Tim Lapthorne's going to play some piano as well. So I'm delighted to be here. I hope uh, some other people will be delighted to be here too, but um, we'll see. We'll just have to see how it turns out. I'm a regular here on the uh, Monday night slots, the Acoustic Live Lounge with Renato Diallo. And um, I've done the main house a couple of times, uh, been invited to play as a support act for Chucho Valdez and um, Joe Lovano and um, a few other bands as well. Come fly with me, we'll I've always sung ever since I left school. I've always been in some kind of band or joined a group and been singing in bars and pubs and restaurants and clubs and stuff like that ever since the early 90s, I think. So it's always been a big, big part of my life and it, it became a bigger part when I produced my first album, uh, debut album, Just In Time, and it was released on OT Records in about 19... No, 2000 and, yeah, 2002, 2003. And um, it got rave reviews in The Guardian, uh, four-star review and uh, CD of the week. And um, uh, yeah, I've just enjoyed playing gigs and, and festivals and hotels and stuff all, all around the world, actually, since, since then. because uh, we all need to calm down a bit, I think. <laughs> We're fighting each other in the aisles. 
of Asda for a fucking toilet roll. Uh, that's not how uh, uh, Churchill would have told us how to fight this, uh, whatever's going on. Uh, fight them on the beaches, fight them in the NHS, but do not be fighting each other for toilet roll. There's no need to crap yourself at the moment. That's straight from uh, the Ronnie Scott's Department of Health. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's Sinatra-esque, certainly, to coin a phrase. Uh, I think it, there's probably a little bit of Chet Baker in there. I think there's probably a little bit of... I love singers like Vic Damone. I love singers like Jack Jones. People like that are great influences. Pe people that can really sing. I think a lot of jazz singers nowadays have a tendency to just kind of... And, and I'm, I, was, uh, I was a very bad proponent of um, the, the sort of not using my voice properly just re relying on the microphone because I used to keep losing my voice at some gigs because some gigs they ask you to play you know sing for three hours at weddings or whatever they just want you to keep going on and on anyway I went to a singing teacher and um, he sorted me out and got me um, like breathing proper apparently he said I'd been doing it wrong for 20 years so um, sometimes it's good to go back to school and get a few lessons on what you thought what you thought you knew <laughs> difficult sometimes to eradicate tension when you're singing, especially when you're performing because you know you get nervous and you, you know want to sound good but you shouldn't be really concentrating on the sound, you should be concentrating on the on the support and the breath and um, just keeping everything as relaxed as possible. It's quite a, it's just quite difficult sometimes when you're a bit stressed on stage. the fact that you uh, risked your lives to be here and uh, uh, we hope to see you again sometime soon. I think jazz has always had that uh, you know tag of it being kind of a smoky you know booze-fueled drug-fueled kind of uh, experience where people are staying up all hours and you know discovering this music and and, uh, and then going to play another gig and then staying up again and it's always had that kind of um, you know for want of a better word rock and roll kind of uh, aspect to it but from from my point of view singing in a club where people aren't smoking or you you're not subjected to any kind of smoke it makes it much easier um, and uh, I think it's probably for the best but you know you know for, in a sort of a film noir kind of sense um, you know you can't have those kind of films without a cigarette there's people like Matt Monroe. Uh, it was reported that you know he, he smoked sort of 20, 30 a day, and he had the you know the kind of golden voice. But unfortunately, he did. I think if I'm not if I'm not wrong, I think he did die of cancer. And uh, Sammy Davis Jr. used to used to smoke and sing at the same time, and he had uh, he got throat cancer. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know it's definitely not good for you, but it looks good. grown up in a, in a house that's played an eclectic sort of uh, you know spread of music my sister studied classical piano my dad was into jazz and 
uh, classical music. So there was always there was always a lot to choose from from, from the old record collection. And uh, one day I discovered I was out in the States actually, and um, I was with my parents and. Um, I was quite young, I was probably about 12 or something, and um, we came across the, the, the Count Basie Orchestra playing in this great big bandstand. And uh, as soon as I heard that sound, I thought, that's how music should sound. Um, I said, what's, what's the, who's that? Um, and my dad said, that's Count Basie Orchestra. And I was like, yeah, that, that's, that's what I want to do, something like that. That looks real, <laughs> like great fun. I remember the first time I played on the main stage and um, kind of contrary to how I thought I would feel, when I walked out I felt incredibly relaxed and in a way I sort of felt like, wow, in a sense I've kind of arrived in a way, I've been waiting for this sort of moment all my life <laughs> kind of thing and uh, you know, thankfully my, my, my parents were in the audience, they, they got to see me sing the main stage for the first time and it was just a delight, it was just, it felt so good, it felt really good to be singing in the same place that, you know, all my heroes, Oscar Peterson, Chet Baker, you know, Ben Webster, all these guys um, have, have also played too. It's a real privilege. As soon as you come up the stairs, you know, you're surrounded by these lovely uh, photographs of all these great, I mean, there's Lonnie Smith behind. You know, I, I haven't got my glasses on, but you know, these great um, megalodons of the jazz world are, are surrounding you as soon as you step through the door. But I think there's something about the vibration of music that must sort of stay in a building or stay in the history of a place. And it's, uh, I think when people come to Ronnie Scott's, I think uh, they, they feel like they're experiencing a little bit of that history too. So that was that, three songs and off. A few days later, I texted David to check a few details, but he didn't reply. A few more days went by and I received a message from him saying he was ill and would be in touch soon. Eventually, more than two weeks after that weird night at Ronnie Scott's, I managed to speak to him down the line via WhatsApp. How are you? I'm feeling much better now. Uh, I've done my 14 days quarantine. Maybe I uh, caught something when I was out doing the Ronnie Scott's gig. Yeah. <laughs> And was it uh, was it the virus? I think so. It was a, a pretty pretty bad cough and a temperature of about thirty nine point six at its height. So I I, I, su I suspect so. I mean, I, I had all the, the symptoms, so I suspect so. But but nobody can actually get any tests or no. um, uh, so it's it's difficult to say with any degree of um, you know scientific or medical accuracy. But uh, I think statistically, it's probably the the virus. But I won't know until I've had an antiviral test, which will be a few months away. Yeah. That was a very strange night, anyway. That um, we spent together. <laughs> That's I, I've done. I've done some weird gigs in my time, but uh, that definitely has to rank up there as, as uh, in in the in the top three. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, well done though. You kept it together, considering there was only I think six people in the audience, including me. Did you know everybody in the audience? I I knew about uh, two. Well, three three six. You <laughs> only half the audience. <laughs> you and two other mates. <laughs> That is madness, isn't it? Who, you know, kudos to them. You know, they braved it out to come and to, to come and see me. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very thankful to them. Yeah. Uh, we just uh, afterwards, uh, me and my other two friends, we went and sat in a, uh, an empty restaurant and had uh, had a beer and uh, something to eat in Soho. In Soho, yeah. No, it felt all a little bit kind of end of days, you know. It did. Well, when we went into the restaurant, you know, we were greeted by sort of these sort of slightly strange smiles. And, right. Uh, like, hello. We don't know whether we should be. 
doing this or not because we've all been told to close but you're here so that that, that was the way that the gig was we we weren't told in in the afternoon after boris's announcement just to kind of knock it on the head which i think we given hindsight i think it, it probably would have been a good idea just to kind of ring everybody up and say look don't listen don't come in but yeah i mean it was unclear there wasn't at that stage it was just advice it wasn't a it wasn't a rule at that point. Boris didn't give a kind of a, a perfectly clear directive to everyone to shut. It was just like um, the advice is that everyone closed down, but, yeah. you know, uh, which is a bit sort of wishy-washy, I think. Yeah, very. How's your work looking now? It must be um, having a um, bit of difficulty. I have, zero, I have zero work. Zero work. Oh, well, at least it's clear what it is. <laughs> no grey areas there. I think a lot of, um, like a lot of other musicians and um, you know singers, actors, and all that. This this uh, this area of the industry, it's we're, we're not sure where the next um, where the next pound is coming from. I mean, uh, we can't be furloughed because we're not employees. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm assuming we'll we'll be in line for some government um, initiative in terms of. I think they average out all your 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 tax return over the three years and then give you that every every month. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But but a lot of you know freelance musicians don't actually make a huge amount of money. A lot of people are are, are doing are, are doing kind of things on the internet now. Like um, my piano player Tim Lapthorne's kind of just uh, you know recording music at home and kind of getting his kids to sing on it and stuff. So, yeah, just yeah. kind of fun stuff because we've got nothing else to do. I think people are staying creative, but um, you know it's very difficult to monetize it at this stage. Yeah, well. Good luck with um, the next few months. I know it's at least you don't have to be worried about catching it now. <laughs> now that you've had yes. it, yeah. Um, well, uh, I guess that's a that's a plus. But um, I mean, in terms of passing it on, I mean, I guess you can carry it on your clothes and rub it onto somebody else, or you know, pass it by your hands or something, but w without being infected yourself. So but you're I, still I, doing I, all the kind of hand washing and social distancing uh, and that kind oh, of stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Def, 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 uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Keep hands. Yeah, my hands are red raw at the moment. <laughs> Prunes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people buy your CD? Because that will be an extra uh, few pennies for you, won't it? They can just get in touch with me on Facebook. Okay. Or uh, Instagram or at davidchewan at icloud.com. So help a guy out. Buy his music. Go to davidchewan.co.uk for David's social media contacts and to find details of his albums and when the world returns to normal, his live performances. All this and some information about the Renato Diallo Quartet with whom David performs at Ronnie's can be found on the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bikes takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. A single mic on a stand in front of plain black curtains on the stage of a jazz club, Club Indigo. A classic blues riff. 
From stage right, the singer, a woman in a black evening dress, approaches the mic. This is Ottilie Patterson, the second jazz singer for Northern Ireland in this episode. What are the chances? She's tense, clasping her hands to her chest. She breaks into song. Midnight hour The night is dark Dogs in the backyard Begin to bark how Where Has Poor Mickey Gone from 1964 begins. It was presented, according to a title card, by Compton Cameo Films and was written, produced and directed by a young newcomer, Jerry Levy. After this striking opening, there's no title sequence and no credits, we go outside into the Soho street in which Club Indigo is situated and there, over the muted strains of our singer within, observe a young couple arguing. She wants to go into the club, he wants to go to the pictures. After a few cross words, she gives up trying to convince him and angrily descends the steps to the basement club, just as three rowdy lads are being ejected by the doorman. After some goading of the bouncers and some macho bravado, one of the lads smashes the club's illuminated sign and they run off down the street, somehow collecting a fourth young man along the way. And so our core gang of four, with whom we will spend the rest of the film, is formed. The leader is Mickey, a nasty, aggressive bully played by John Malcolm. His sidekicks are Ginger, played by Ray Armstrong, and Tim, played in his first film role by a very youthful John Chalice, nearly 20 years before he picked up the part of Boise in Only Fools and Horses. They're all rough, working-class lads in their best mod suits, in contrast to the newcomer to the group, a posh boy called Kip, played by Christopher Robbie, wearing a blazer, and university scarf. After a bag of chips each and some more rampaging around Soho, the evening has already become quite ugly by the time the gang spy a vulnerable old man working all alone by himself in a basement workshop. Sensing easy pickings, they sneak in and subject the man, Emilio Dinelli, played by Warren Mitchell, to an unpleasant ordeal. The rest of the film takes place in Emilio's workshop, where, according to the plaque on the door, he makes fairground novelties. The lads enjoy themselves, running around the place, trashing Emilio's stock, until the events take a distinct turn for the peculiar. Where Has Poor Mickey Gone is a short film running to just under an hour, so it was used for a while as a B feature, supporting other films distributed by Compton Films, the small production and distribution company that was based in Soho in the 60s and which distributed this film. After it dropped out of cinemas, it was unavailable for many years, but thanks to the BFI and to Talking Pictures TV, it's found an audience again in recent years. Dr Adrian Smith is a lecturer in film at Sussex University and is the first of my two guests talking about where has Paul McKee gone. Adrian has been on the show before and is an expert on Compton Films. He also owns a unique archive of Compton memorabilia, and the last time he was in, he brought some examples with him. Sadly, he wasn't able to bring in any such material on this occasion because we were socially distancing and he joined me down the line from his home. 
I'm in this quite strange setup. I'm sitting underneath my daughter's bunk bed, surrounded by duvets, talking in a socially distanced way to um, Dr. Adrian Smith, who we've had on the show before. Um, and we're talking about the film Where's Poor Mickey Gone? So, Adrian, thanks for coming back in a, in a virtual way. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. So what are your first impressions of the film? I know you, you, you were familiar with it before, weren't you? Yes, yeah, because it showed, up on, it showed up on Talking Pictures TV. So I watched it then. That was the first time I'd seen it a few years ago. But yeah, it's a great film. I'm not the first person to say this, I'm sure, but it watches, when you're watching it, it feels like a cross between Clockwork Orange and an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, very much so, yeah. There's not much else quite like this. For somebody who isn't an experienced director, it's very bold. Mm. It starts in quite a bold way. There's this black screen, single mic on a stand, this blues music playing, and a singer walks on, Ottilie Patterson, who I'd never heard of before, and she looks a bit like my auntie or an auntie, you know. She's, <laughs> she's got that kind of anti-hair and anti-dress, and she's a fantastic singer and just sings a song, just straight. No camera changes, nothing. Yeah. I was really blown away by that. What I particularly like as well with this opening sequence is that it wasn't shot day for night, which was very common in low-budget films in those days to go and shoot day for night. And day for night always looks like day for night. Yeah. And this one, they genuinely look like they're running around Soho in the dark. It's very atmospheric, which I really like. That's interesting, yeah, because quite often you'll see films in that era and they'll be chased down the country road by somebody. It's clearly daytime and they put some kind yeah. of filter on it or something I mean, is that what they do yeah they they put a kind of blue filter over it to make it look like a night time but you can see behind them the sky is bright yeah and, the and it doesn't look like night at all but this one it's proper dark uh, as they're running around soho which i thought was really cool and it was shot on location it, it, although it feels it's very quiet there's no hardly a person on the street obviously they close the streets off a little bit but it feels almost like a studio because it's so quiet but it is actually on location, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know Soho better than I do, so I wasn't sure, but I'm assuming that that was a real club that they shot the opening sequence where they come up the steps out of a jazz club, and then I thought I recognised some of the streets, although I wasn't entirely sure which street was which. So there's a gang of three lads. We've got Mickey, John Malcolm, who I I mean, I recognised the face. Yeah, I think most of this cast were just mainly doing television work at the time. And so um, I think they, they've got familiar faces if you've watched enough 60s TV. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is, yeah. And then there's Ginger, his sidekick, played by Ray Armstrong. Christopher Robbie, who plays Kip. Now, he's this posh boy who joins the gang of reprobates. I thought he looked a bit like, and I think it's maybe the scarf that did it, he reminded me of one of the uh, people who played number two in The Prisoner, but I don't think it was him. <laughs> But yeah, they're uh, they're an interesting young bunch, and then obviously John Chalice in his uh, his first role, I believe it was John Chalice Boise from uh, Only Fools and Horses. He looks so young in this. I know he's actually in his twenties. I did look it up, but he looks like he could be about sixteen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's why he's cast in a way because he's the very naive character, isn't he? He's um, yeah. doesn't seem to be as nasty as the other two. Certainly, he seems to be a, the kind of the butt of uh, of Mickey's jokes and things and. He gets bullied and that kind of thing. and Yeah, it makes you wonder what he's sticking around for, really. The glory. <laughs> chips. Yeah, chips, yeah. I interviewed John Chalice about this a few weeks ago, well, well before the uh, lockdown situation. I did it on the phone. So I'm just going um, to drop this interview in now because he talks a little bit about the locations and he talks about running around. So, But anyway, here, this, is, this is John Chalice about four weeks ago. 
So, could you just tell me about your recollections of um, of the film? Uh, uh, yeah, well, it's the first um, first film I'd, I'd ever done, and I was um, I was a young man. Uh, I, I got an, an agent called Vincent Shaw in Soho. Very exciting time in Soho. You can imagine the start of rock and roll and all yeah. that. And suddenly, I got picked to uh, to be in this film with uh, Warren Mitchell, and uh, I was very excited about it because we were racing around Soho up and down the alleys, you know, uh, doing this filming. And it was terribly exciting. And, uh, and at that stage, I thought, oh, well, this is this is the start on the road to Hollywood stardom. You see? And it really was? <laughs> well, you know, it was in a slightly different direction. But, uh, no, it was just a very exciting time, you know. And, uh, and there was a wonderful... Uh, in those days, of course, you were young and very innocent and you hadn't seen much of the world. And... Uh, it was just everything was just fantastic. So and uh, and I still uh, when I go into London, I do voiceovers or something, and I still go to uh, the places I remember filming. You know. So it was shot um, on Berwick Street. Well, I know there's a chip shop on Berwick Street. I remember that. Yes, that's bit. right. Yeah. So that is that same place. That's. Um... Yeah. So there's an alley between um, between Berwick Street and uh, the next street over, whatever that's called. And I remember sort of running up and down there, and there's sort of a. A sort of a mock fight we did just outside uh, uh, Warren Mitchell's um, abode uh, before we got in and started terrorising him. And uh, and Warren Mitchell uh, was wasn't yet Alf Garnet, was he? But he, he was quite well known no. at that stage, wasn't he? he was no, I think he was just a great character actor, you know. And uh, many of them about um, in those days. I think he'd done um, the Small World of Sammy Lee at that point, one of the great Soho films. Yeah, he plays Anthony Newley's yeah. brother in that. There was a, that's right. Anthony Anthony Newley was uh, was about in those days, wasn't he? And, yeah. Uh, as I say, a very exciting time, and uh, you know, you'd go past the Two Eyes coffee bar or something, or in Mead Street, and so on, and you see the Rolling Stones sitting in a cafe or something. I mean, it was just, <laughs> just a, an amazing an amazing time. Yeah, uh, it really was. Yeah, and they, they just hang out there, would they? They'd just be sitting outside, smoking fags and drinking cappuccino. Well, no, I, I just remember seeing them in a, in, a, in a coffee. We just went in for a coffee, and there, there they were, sort of Jagger and uh, Richard and um, and the others sort of sitting there, yeah, sort of hanging out, and not behaving terribly well, I seem to remember. But <laughs> They don't have to. They're the Rolling Stones. They can do what they want. No, no, you can do what the hell you like if you're a Rolling Stone. But, uh, no, it was it's had such a charge to it, the whole of, uh, of that part of London, you know. So to be running about sort of filming was just terribly exciting. Yeah. And how do you think the film stands up today? Because I think it's a fantastic film, and it's, it's almost forgotten in a way. I, I can't quite figure out why that would be. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know no view of it sort of, uh, of being uh, particularly special at that time. I mean, I thought it was a good story, you know, and, uh, and uh, an exciting thing to film. And, you know, my part was, uh, was quite good. I was about the only sympathetic uh, one of the, uh, yeah. of the gang. You know, uh, you're Mickey's whipping boy, aren't you? Really, he he kind of picks yeah, you quite yeah. a lot. And... Yeah, that's right. And uh, who was the guy who did that? What's what's his name? John John Malcolm. John Malcolm, yes, who was uh, quite a character. He took it all quite seriously, I think. <laughs> and, uh, did he? And I, yeah, well, yeah. To, um, uh, yes, he did. I mean, I think he was one of those people who <clears throat> took a bit of delight in actually. Um, Exploring, shall we say, the reality of the situation, you know, and uh, kind of dangerous character, I suppose, in a lot of ways. Yeah, that suits his character. Oh, absolutely, film. yeah. I mean, you know, no, I mean, he did, uh, did a lot of uh, 
uh, good work after that. So I used to see him in a couple of uh, things, and he just had a sort of a, a bit of danger about him, you know, which is absolutely right for that uh, for that character. Yeah, all the characters, I think, the four uh, young men in the in the gang, they're quite well drawn. That the dynamics are very clear. You've got Mickey, who's a kind of he's the the bully and a bit of a coward. Yeah. Um, and then you're there. You're a kind of sort of nice but dim. Um, yeah. A little bit. And nice but dim, Tim. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Ginger <laughs> Thank you for is that. a yeah. 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 <laughs> that is extraordinary, extraordinary characterisation, really. Um, I must have uh, done it rather well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely right. Yeah. And uh, and Ginger is a kind of. I mean, he's he basically does whatever. He's not quite on a par with Mickey, but and then Mickey is. Um, he's slightly intimidated by Kip. This new. Sort of Christopher Robbie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and all that's very clear, and it's quite, it's quite satisfying as a viewer, I yeah. think, to see that kind of that that play out. And yeah, it's it's amazing that it's uh, you know, it has this sort of slight resurgence uh, because I don't think it got terribly far. I mean, it was a sort of a B movie, wasn't it? I suppose. Um, yeah, it's the same. I think it's short, isn't it? I think that's the problem with it. It's not really quite feature length. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When did you when did you last see it? Oh crikey, hundred years ago. Right. Um, um, I God, I can't remember how many years ago it was. But uh, I remember it also was, it was great excitement because it came out in one of those um, those sort of magazine type papers, sort of the New Musical Express or something okay. like that. And there was a great feature about it, and I, and uh, I remember being very excited. Lots of people sort of uh, ringing up and saying, "Oh wow, oh, look at this!" You know, and there was a and the whole story was in there and pictures of us all. And uh, pictures from the, the film, and uh, and I think it sort of appeared um, as a, as a support for for other films. Yeah, places, I've read that. Yeah, places like Woking, and I, I don't know. I'm just uh, plucking <laughs> that out of the air, but it's that sort of thing, you know. And so it's sort of I don't know, just sort of frittered away, really, the whole thing. And uh, it's a shame. And, uh, and now here we are sort of talking about it all 100 years later. It's funny because everybody I've spoken to about it, some people have said, I've seen that, it's fantastic. And other people have said, oh, no, I've heard about that and I've never managed to see it. So it's, uh -huh. it feels like it has a sort of a cult kind of edge to it now. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think it... Yes, I, th I think that's right. Yeah, and It's happening to all sorts of things. I mean, uh, I did a, a Doctor Who in about 1976 with uh, Tom Baker... Six-parter, right. you know, which, since it came out on DVD, it's, it's this great big sort of surge of uh, approval, I suppose, you know, amongst the uh, the hooligans or, or whatever they're called. Uh, <laughs> no, that's they, what you were in the film. I think they're called. Are they called Hoov? No, not Hoovers. Surely they're called Hoo Hoovians or Hoovians. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but it's one of their favourite uh shows you know the story was great i mean the special effects were rubbish but <laughs> yeah well in today's terms but it's it's got really popular again and uh i think that's wonderful watching the film actually put me on to um otterly patterson the oh, singer yes. I've ne i'd never heard of her and she was absolutely fantastic uh, very very famous uh in those days yeah jazz singer Days of Skiffle and uh, early rock and roll yeah yeah oh yeah she was uh, i think she sang with chris barbers Jazz band. That's what she was married to him. She was married to him. Was yeah, for about twenty years or something. Know. Yeah. Yes, that's right. But I remember the name very well. Yeah. Do you know anything about the director Jerry Levy? He seems to be he produced it, directed it, wrote it under a pseudonym. Do, do you know what happened to him? Because he didn't... no, I don't. I get it. Was, I, I have two names in my 
in my head that I've remembered, uh, which was uh, Ledek, L-E-D-E-C-K, um, and Indigo. And I think it, it was under, I, I suppose it was an amalgamation of two, uh, two outfits, Ledek, Indigo films or something like that. So I've, I've always remembered those two names. But uh, no, Jerry, Jerry Levy, I, of course I remember being the director, but what happened to him after that, I, I have no idea. But I remember where their offices were, it was in Darbley Street in Soho. So, I remember, so every time I, uh, I go in that neck of the woods, I sort of remember it from, uh, from that name. We did a, a film on the podcast called um, Secrets of a Windmill Girl, which is a kind of very bad kind of sexploitation film from 1966. Mm-hmm. Um, with Pauline Collins is in it and uh, Martin Jarvis appears in it as well. But uh, that was made by this company, Compton Films, yeah, uh, and Compton appear in the credits for Mickey as well. It's uh, I think they kind of distributed it or something like that. Oh, maybe yeah. it was kind of out of there. They didn't normally do legit films. It was mo- normally these kind of naturist films and those kind of um, ah the Paul the Paul Raymond stuff. Yeah, slightly, yeah, 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 early, early kind of early sixties. Yeah. So it's kind of they had some they had to be pretending to be uh, educational, but um, they yeah. clearly, clearly were not educational. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, no, it's uh, I mean, it was a part of the excitement of Soho, of course. It's uh, pretty sleazy in those days. Yeah, um, all sorts of stuff going on, you know. Yeah. Which uh, I know it was, it was all uh, great eye openers to me. I was completely naive and uh, got to do all sorts of interesting situations. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> do you regret the but, kind of the cleaning up of Soho and the and the and the de sleazifying of it? Well, I, uh, I the trouble is the world has changed, hasn't it? And um, you know, looking back on it, it was it was sleazy, but it was pretty innocent. Yeah, sleazy, if you know what I mean. But now it's become so sort of almost corporate. But the ladies were out on the streets, you know, sort of plying their trades. And I sort of I sort of liked it, you know. I I sort of quite enjoyed it. I never indulged in it, but uh, I quite liked the idea that uh, there were these uh, characterful ladies on the streets. There's a fit on, isn't there? When it's it's kind of like being a tourist in somewhere else in a way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah. And it was quite exotic, you know. I mean, a lot of the uh, a lot of the shots selling uh, sort of Italian stuff, and it was terribly exciting, and all those wonderful smells coming out of some of the food shops. You know, it's a fantastic time. So it sounds like John Chalice had a fantastic time. (laughs) <laughs> making that film, <laughs> running around in Soho in 1964 with the uh, the mucky women around and the the rock stars, and I think his performance is uh, he does stand out. Even though we know him because he's obviously very famous, I think he does stand out as being slightly different. And he injects a, a different kind of edge into the dynamic between the group because all the group really are quite nasty individuals, and he's the sort of conscience of the group. Well, again, I mean the gang. If you just take the original three of them they remind me so much of the gang in clockwork orange (laughs) it's almost like a very similar dynamic you've got the leader and then you've got the kind of nice but thick one um and then you've got the other one that will just basically go along with whatever the leader says but at the same time occasionally seems to have a bit of doubt but they're they're pretty nasty i mean we when they first come up out of the club then they're just kind of having a go at the bouncers you can sort of think oh yeah these are lovable rogues uh, and then about two minutes later, they nearly kill a guy in the street and, you know, attack his girlfriend. And they're actually really vicious. They're really dangerous. <laughs> Mickey especially seems really poisonous. Absolutely. I don't understand why Kip joins them. 
Other than he must be a complete psychopath because he's clearly superior in many ways to all of them. He's probably got some money in his pocket. He'd probably have a good night out, you know, but he obviously gets off on it. Yeah, he doesn't really he doesn't really fit. And when he does join in with what they're doing, it seems odd. Like when they all start um, play sword fighting with all the rubbish and he joins in straight away and it just seems... Because although we've only seen him for a couple of minutes, it already seems quite out of character. And he's the one who picks up the rock and beats the guy over the head. Oh, was it him? I couldn't tell because it's dark. I was entirely sure who. I wasn't entirely sure who was holding the rock. Maybe he represents the kind of um, upper middle classes that were hanging out in Soho for a good time, like the the rock stars and the the film stars who like to get into the edge of criminality and the, the, the more grubby side of Soho, but keep their hands clean. Maybe that's him. So maybe he represents that. He's like the guy who will come along and make friends with the craze, but let them do his dirty work. So it was written, written directed and produced by Jerry Levy. I can't find anything about him. I don't know anything about him at all. And John didn't seem to know much about him either. What have you dug up in your Compton archive? Well, main, I mean, only it seems like he came along as quite a young guy and got to know the guys at Compton. I get the impression that he made this film fairly independently or he raised the finance independently and then took the finished film to Compton. That's what it looks like because it wasn't produced by them, but it was distributed by them. Right. They put it out on a double bill with Repulsion, I believe, originally. And then they kept using it again and again as a as a supporting feature on other films. OK. Um, but then Jerry Levy went on to do one other feature film as a director, which was for Compton, called The Body Stealers. It's got George Sanders in it, who looks thoroughly bored. But then the, the, the kind of comedy casting in that is Neil Connery, brother of Sean. He was, I believe he was a plumber. So that was Jerry Levy's big break as a director. It's the closest he got to a studio film. It's just a weird science fiction film that borrows themes from the body snatchers, but also has a kind of sexy alien lady in a bikini. (laughs) But But Jerry Levy just continued to work around Compton for a while. He produced or associate produced a couple of their other films. And where does this film fit in the whole Compton thing? Because um, I remember the last time we spoke to you, it was about Secrets of a Windmill Go. He talked about how Compton developed from basically mucky cinemas. Yeah. And the two guys whose name I can't remember. Tony Tenser and Michael Klinger. Tenser and Klinger. They decided to um, start producing films just to fill up their cinemas. But it sounds like they ended up going on to make a raft of... I mean, this film's a good film. You know, and the other films, they're not, there's not, they're not sleazy of the films, are they? They're just, I mean, they're sort of low budget, but they're not bad films. Yeah, I mean, they, they were producing two or three films a year by this point, but still in the kind of X-rated area. So when, when, so when they distributed this film, their own productions at the time were things like London in the Raw, the, the sort of Mondo documentary. Yeah. And they just did the Yellow Teddy Bears the year before which is a really fascinating film. So although they were only producing two or three a year, they were actually distributing loads of films by this point. And what happened to Compton in the end? Did they just fizzle out or did they get eaten up by another company? Or Well, they kind of fell apart, really. Um, so Tony Tenser, he went off to form his own company, which was Tygon, in around 1967. And Michael Klinger wanted to be a producer, and he went on to produce some quite big films, including, obviously, Get Carter. Oh, yeah. This big one. One person we haven't mentioned, I guess, getting back to the film, is Warren Mitchell. I was about to say that, yeah. Who, 
and uh, there's a there's a uh, there's a line in the film where he says, "I was here before your father, and before your father's father." But um, I looked him up, and he was only in his thirties at this time when he was yeah. making this movie. He he made a career of looking like an old man. Yeah, because yeah, because this is I think it was about four or five months before he became Alf Garnet, who was in his sixties. You know, I mean, he's prematurely bald. It always helps if you want to play older. Yeah, if you look at a lot of actors of his generation who'd uh, who'd been in the war and come back, they were all they were almost all prematurely bald. Yeah, and made a career out of playing old guys. And you look at um, what's his name. The director of The Amazing Mr. Blunden. He's in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, Lionel Jeffrey. That's him. Yeah, I mean, in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, he's the same age as Dick Van Dyke. I think he might have even been younger than Dick Van Dyke. So, yeah, so Warren Mitchell's just sort of fits in with that that sort of generation of actors. I, I really like his performance in other films around that time. Like, he pops up in a great film about an alien stalking Soho. I don't know I that one. That's one not on that my might. list. What's it called? That one is called. I'm just having to check because it's called two. It's got two different titles. Oh yeah, there you go. 1965, The Night Caller. In America, it's called The Blood Beast from Outer Space. <laughs> that one's basically an alien comes to London and prowls the pawn shops. And he also, Warren Mitchell pops up around this time in a lot of TV, and he's always playing foreign roles because he's. You know, he's got one of those. He's a bit like Ben Kingsley. He's got one of those faces where he can make he can pass himself off as pretty much any nationality. Yeah, and be convincing. He was in um, the Small World of Sammy Lee in the same year as this. Um, have you seen that film? Right. No, I still haven't seen that. One. It's a fantastic film, and he and he is yeah. fantastic in it. And he plays this very very Jewish East End guy, runs a deli, absolutely flawless performance, beautiful performance actually. I did read somewhere about this film, about Mickey. A couple of people said, oh, his performance is a little bit over the top, a little bit hammy, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I don't think it is. I think, it's, um, I think it's quite understated, really. Yeah, his performance fits the role quite well. I think he's, I mean, he's supposed to be a magician. He's a stage magician, so it is going to be over the top. Yeah. And we can't really uh, talk about... And also, obviously, there's a sinister element to it which we don't want to discuss yeah we can't talk about that because it, and it's what's quite, what's quite weird is it seems like a piece of not social realism but it's it could be a sort of almost like a kitchen sink drama and then it takes on a kind of supernatural twist which we cannot mention <laughs> so it doesn't it, as a film it, it doesn't really sit in any one particular genre do you know what i mean i think that's why it is a bit kind of twilight zoney yeah i like that and it and it's also the same length as a kind of TV episode around that time. Some of the TV dramas or something were about an hour long. Yeah. So it's got the perfect narrative structure to fit into an hour with that sort of third act reveal. Could it be a longer film? Could it be uh, not padding out, but a little bit more narrative, a little bit more background to any of the characters? Or once you get into Warren Mitchell's workshop, I mean, that's it. It's just one place, isn't it? And it feels it could almost be a stage play. I think they could have done more with the location stuff. They could have had more time seeing the kind of trouble these guys get into around Soho or the kind of trouble they cause, perhaps to get us to the point where we really want something bad to happen to them. But does something bad happen to them? You'll have to watch the film to find out. It's now available to buy on DVD, and you can also watch it this instant on the BFI player. Links are in the show notes. Thanks to Adrian Smith for coming on the show again to talk about the film. You can find him on Twitter at, at @retroramblings, where you'll also find a link to his blog. 
If you'd like to hear about Adrian's archive of Compton film memorabilia, listen to Soho Bites episode four, and you can see some examples of it in the show notes for that episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com. And of course, I'm also extremely grateful to the magnificent John Chalice for taking time out to talk to me. His Twitter handle is the best one yet. It's at being Boise. And finally, thanks again to David Tewan, and I'm very glad you made it through your brush with coronavirus. Details about all the guests, links to their social media, and to all sorts of other material about this and all previous episodes are also in the show notes. The next episode is all about, well, I don't really know, to be honest, or when it's going to be coming out. I'm still trying to arrange some remote interviews. I do have some parts of some episodes ready, so hopefully there'll be one out in about a month. In the meantime, for the duration of this lockdown, Soho Bites will be on the radio. Every Friday morning on Soho Radio, Claire Lynch, who presents the Soho Hour from 9 till 10 every weekday, will be playing one of the features from a past episode of Soho Bites. Tune into that if you can at SohoRadioLondon.com and follow Claire for updates on Twitter at Claire Lynch Red and follow the station at Soho Radio. All these details are, of course, in the same old place, the show notes. I'm going to say it one more time just for luck, SohoBitesPodcast.com. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Soho Bites on your favourite podcast provider. And if you have time to leave a nice review, that would be very much appreciated. I'm always keen to hear suggestions for Soho-related features or films to talk about. And you can tweet the show with your ideas at BitesSoho or email us on SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi. And it's based on an original idea by Dr. Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter at Cities in Cinema. That's it for this episode. Until next time, take good care of yourself and everybody else. Wash your hands, clap them for the NHS on Thursdays at 8pm and bye for now. (laughs) 